Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang and the urge just took me. To twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the club, what? Our video game industry is hotter than ever this season, and one good reason? Nintendo has introduced some hot new toys. But have things gone a bit too far? This evening, for a special report on Video Mania. Let's get the gold out. Hello and welcome to It's Nice That Podcast with me, Alex Beck. And me, Will Hudson. It's Nice That is a website showcasing creative work from all around the world. We look at everything from design to illustration, photography and video, and everything else in between. In this series, we're going to pick creative things that people like and experience, whether that be Christmas adverts, public art, or even currency, and work out why they're successful. So this episode, we're talking about video games, computer games, whatever you like to call them, Will. The Nintendo Switch, due to be released in March. Have you seen it? I've seen it, and kind of full disclosure before we get started, I don't think I'm a big gamer. Um, but I think... Uh, Stay with us, listeners. <laughs> I, have, I have seen it, and it looks exciting. And like all these things, I remember when kind of PlayStations or Xboxes have been released in the past, they become these huge events that you read about, and gamers kind of come out of the woodwork, don't they? in their excitement and picking it up and chatting about it. They do. And I think, weirdly, I'm less interested in the consoles, but I'm more interested in the actual games. Like, what makes a really good one? I can kind of picture you growing up kind of just late night or at all hours, your mum just beckoning you to kind of beckoning, kind of works, to stop playing video games. Is that true? Good question, Will. I was never allowed a console as a kid. It was like one of those things my dad didn't let me have, like football boots and friends and things like that. You know, no, you can't have a console because I turn your eyes square or whatever that might be. So that only fueled my um, desire to play computer games. So I was a bit of a fiend in the end. This uh, is brilliant. Yeah, Keep I going. loved it. I totally love computer games. So where would you play them? At home. Where else would you play them? But your dad banned you. Yeah, so eventually he gave in, same as football boots and friends. You've got him wrapped around your little finger. My mate Omar had a um, master system with a game called Alex Kidd in Miracle World. Do you remember that? No. Anyway, master system was like a really early Sega one before the Mega Drive. It was just like crack. I was so excited going around to his house like, oh my God, I get to play Alex Kidd. I thought Alex Kidd was me. I was a kid and I was Alex. It was phenomenal. And then Game Gears, PCs, 
game boys after that i was away and also my brother's really massively into gaming so i had access to all of these amazing treats and has that continued through to now or was there a period that you kind of post n64 will it's a drought it's like the sahara which one was the n64 goldeneye goldeneye and mario kart yeah the one thing i have been consistently into my whole life is football manager yeah obviously counts and i try not to play it that much but even now i'm still quite into it but just on my phone now and maybe that's the interesting thing to talk about is the evolution of moving away from sat in front of the pc on the master system at omar's house now to on the tube it's a time filler for me rather than a an end in its own right same for you you just never played no so i thought that i thought when we knew we were going to do video games i was a bit like well Alex is going to have to do a lot of the talking because I I didn't really think I did play a lot of video games. Uh, my mum and dad similarly weren't kind of big advocates of having a games console. So there was an element which was when you went to mates' houses and they had one, it became a proper kind of novelty that you'd kind of want to play the whole time you are at a friend's house. Did you ever play Doom? No. Mate, I still remember the cheats from Doom. So if you typed in IDKFA, you got all the guns. And if you typed in IDDQD, you got like invincibility, god mode. That's how into it I was. That's... Great knowledge. When I was thinking about games, the games that I think are really successful, the ones that I've loved, is where there's progression. Like Football Manager, it's like a sense of achievement for me that I need in it. The same as Sensible Soccer. I love Sensible Soccer, but I love Sensible World of Soccer where you could build your own squad and those kind of things. And I don't know what it is, but the, especially when Pro Evo had like career mode, all of that kind of stuff I got really addicted to when there was progression achievement. But then you get to a point where you think, wow, I've really done a good thing here. And you look back at your life and you're like, oh man, I've spent three months doing this. I think gameplay for me is probably the, the top thing. You talk about storytelling. But I think uh... <laughs> Gameplay? Go on, explain that. Well, by about. that, I mean <laughs> the enjoyment you get from playing as in kind of the kind of realism of playing those games. I think that's why Sensible Soccer was so good was because actually it was quite easy to pick up and you could you could kind of play with it enough that you could become good at it. Like there was very obvious differences between someone that had spent far too much time on it and someone that was new to it, the way you could curl the ball, those kind of little touches. I think that's that for me is when they're, they're really good. So today I'm really interested to know if there's, uh, I guess, a red thread through all the really successful games. There's something that makes them all absolutely amazing whether that's a great story or it's great graphics or it's a great main character or i'm interested to know if there's a code if there's a way of actually making a successful game spot on every time uh, i think i probably want to know kind of where it's going where like i hear vr banded around the whole time and actually i want to know what impact that's going to have on the next generation of games We're going to be hearing from the creator of Pong, Alan Alcorn, as well as talking to video game history publisher, Darren Wall. Also from Climax Studios, we'll be talking to games designer Russ Earwaker about the process of making a great game for regular consoles as well as virtual reality. In the 80s when I was growing up, I got to borrow an Atari from my mum's friend. Um, we used to play Pong and Frogger. We had an Atari when I was really small. The game that I first played was Dizzy and the Magic Egg, which was impossibly hard for maybe a four or five-year-old. Dizzy kept falling down the well. Alex, I want the mastermind music. I want the... Didn't. Top 20, 
best-selling video games all time. I tell you what, Grand Theft Auto must be in there. Yes, That's the Grand thing. Theft Auto number four. Go proper old school. Think of like Doom, pro- Pong, um, Pac-Man. Keep keep going. Um, Think of like Street Fighter. Bubble Bobble. Uh, hang on, I'm going to give you a clue. Minesweeper. Think of like Game Boy. Tetris. What? Yeah. Is that number one? Number one. The 495 million. That's how much money they released made Released in out. 1984. What an incredible game though. It's something about Tetris that I think is important to talk about is just that complete simplicity. And there's one differentiation, isn't it? It just speeds up. That's it, right? Nothing else happened. You didn't get more shapes. You didn't turn them around in different ways. You couldn't add to them or anything. It just got faster. Yeah. Isn't that just the most brilliant, beautiful bit of design? And it is the kind of game that anyone can play. But also now, if you had that now, the free one would be the one you get and then there'd be a, a freemium, premium version. For another 10p, you got different shapes or you'd ruin No it. advertising. Yeah, you totally ruin Tetris now if you were to make it. The complete purity and simplicity of that game will never be seen again. One person you'd really expect to understand the simplicity of gaming that I was talking about is Alan Alcorn, who created the game Pong in the early days of Atari with founders Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. I'm Al Alcorn. I guess I'm known for being one of the first people to start a video game company in 1972 called Atari. I was born in San Francisco in 1948 and grew up in the city. I guess I have that nerd gene, you know, the likes to know how everything works. Uh, So taking apart the color television and getting it to work again without killing myself was one of the things I would do. In 1972, I was working at Ampex. I knew Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. They had been working there before, but Nolan and Ted quit to start up a company called Syzygy. He hired me, and why did he hire me? I think he hired me because I was good with video and digital circuits, and uh, I was cheap. (laughs) It was a thousand bucks a month, you know? As an engineer there, my first project was to design a video game, which was called Pong. Nolan was the driving force. He thought he would give me a simple exercise. And so he specked out the simplest possible game uh, ever conceived of to this day, now called Pong, and told me to do it. And lied to me, told me he had a contract from General Electric for a home game and get to work. So I sat down to build the game. It consists of one moving object, a square, a little dot, which represented the ball. There was a dash line in the center of the screen called the net. And there were two paddles on either side uh, controlled by a knob. There were two knobs, one for each paddle. And that's it. It was very, very primitive, very simple. The fact that nobody from General Electric ever called or came by or wrote a letter, never occurred to me that this was all bullshit. I tried to make the game playable. I added the speed up and the reflections and things about it that made it uh, playable. And, uh, you know, it wasn't so bad. The prototype that I built of Pong was very, very crude, barely working, but it was fast. And uh, over the weekend, Ted built a cabinet for it, a tabletop thing, very simple put the name Pong on it, uh, no instructions, 
put a coin mechanism cash box bolted on the side of the cabinet. And we put it out on location and put it out there to see what would happen. It worked for a while and then it stopped working, which did not surprise me because of the way it was built. So I, I was asked to go out there and fix it. And I did after work and uh, discovered uh, when I opened up the cash box to get a free game that the cash box was just stuffed full of quarters and wouldn't take anymore. <laughs> Brought a bag of quarters back the next day to the office and I said, hey, Noah, here's the problem. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Pong was appealing, I think, number one, because it was very simple and anybody could play it, okay? Number two, it required two people and uh, the cabinet was a very plain, simple cabinet with no uh, naked ladies on it like pinball machines in those days had. And so it wound up being, it probably being a very good social game. Many years ago, I was at a, uh, 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 classic video game conference show going on in the Bay Area. And I was there and I'm walking around with my Atari badge on and there's a Pong machine and there's like a 10 year old boy playing the machine by himself. So I go up and I say, I'll play with you, you know. So I'm playing with him and I'm beating him. And I said, you know, at one time I was the best Pong player in the whole world. And he looks at me, what? I go, yeah, I was the only Pong player in the world. <laughs> That's the way to do it. And, uh, <laughs> Alan sounds great. What a brilliant guy. Humiliating 10-year-olds. <laughs> I, I just love the fact, the thing he said about there being no instructions. What a absolutely perfectly conceived and executed game that it doesn't need any instructions. I love it. I'd love to have a go now. Do you think if we release Pong now, today, it'd never be made, it would still be successful? No. I think loads of that stuff is about context because the expectations on what technology can do are, are so heightened. I think the context of releasing something in the 70s is totally different. It's totally new, totally plays into that thing of kind of unexpectedness and, and wanting to know what it is. I think you made a really nice point, again, about the social aspect of gaming. I think there's something crucial to that. Do you think Pong would work in VR? Like if me and you were the paddles, right, and there was a virtual reality ball, that's called tennis, isn't it? <laughs> Do you think that would work? Yes. I mean, that's been... I think tennis could take off. <laughs> I think there's a lot of money in tennis. I think, you know, we were talking about Alan and who invented Pong and that idea of where games come from is a really interesting next part to talk about. And so we are going to speak to someone who can tell us a little bit about that. So our first guest runs a publishing company called Read Only Memory, has produced amazing books on notable moments in gaming history, Darren Wall. Darren, welcome to the pod. You're a graphic designer by trade, but also founder of Read Only Memory. Tell us about Read Only Memory. Well, yeah, I was a graphic designer, art director. And then four years ago, I did a Kickstarter campaign to fund what I thought was a lovely weekend job making a book on a, a UK development company called Sensible Software that I grew up with. And I launched it on Kickstarter and it really took off and it kind of took over my life. And then from there, I got offers from Sega to make a book on their history, Sega of Japan. Uh, and it just kind of led into other things. It just started to become one of those things that was like, oh, I've, I've touched the nerve here. Like People are interested in this stuff. So that's where Read Any Memory came about. And for those that don't know Sensible Software, 
what were the yeah. big hits? So they did Sensible Soccer, which might be... Oh, yeah. Either huge. you know oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah huge favourites. It gets Ryan that Rose. response. I'd love a game now. We just um, just heard from the guy who made Pong, and I'm desperate to now play Pong. Oh. But Sensible Soccer, I would happily just yeah. stop recording. Yeah. A lot of these games you have to go back and play when you're researching them, and there's a little bit of a depressing moment where things haven't aged very well. But Sensible Soccer is still like a finely tuned masterpiece. Definitely yeah. my favourite game. So if we take Sensible Soccer as an example, why... Is that as successful as it is? Video games used to be described as a hobby in the UK. And then there was this moment in the kind of mid-90s where suddenly PlayStation arrived and it became an industry. Um, so things like Sensible Soccer, they were dealing with hardware that, you know, it wasn't 3D. The resolution wasn't high. There was something like, you know, 16 or 32 colours you had to play with. You had limitations. And I think like the best bands in the world or designers, you know, that, that when they sit down, they'll set themselves limitations, you know, say, OK, we're only going to work with a synthesizer or, you know, we're just going to work in black and white. You know, like we, you know, like as a graphic designer, I can talk about people like non-format, you know, they set themselves colour palette limits and things like that. And it really pays off. So I think with Sensible Soccer, it was just like it's it's limited and they just made the best of the medium. If you had never played Sensible Soccer in your life, and I suggest anyone who's listening who's never played it, go and look at it. You'll probably start laughing. It looks ridiculous. It looks like Sabutio sped up. It plays more like pinball. So you said there was a point where it went from hobby to industry. What was that point? What was the driver of that? So I think there were kind of like three strands going on. There was, I mean, you mentioned Pong earlier on. There was that kind of grew into the arcade world. And that was kind of led by the Japanese primarily and the Americans. So, you know, in terms of the UK, that would be something, a machine that was in a pub or a seaside arcade. Uh, and then there was a home computer revolution. So by the start of the 80s, like things like the Spectrums and the Commodore 64s and these kind of like home computers, which people were using for accounting or to do spreadsheets on or, you know, uh, make posters for the church or whatever, like these, these tools came into the house and they were kind of new and sparkly. But also they were tools to make video games with. So people were teaching themselves to make games. Uh, you could go into a, a shop and buy a magazine that had lines of code, which you would literally type out by hand. And, you know, God forbid you get a wow. spelling mistake and you'd have a relatively crap game at the end of it. But actually it was a whole generation and some of whom might not have been consciously even interested in it were learning to code. In the UK, I mean, the third book we did concentrated on this movement called Britsoft, which was these teenagers learning to code and... Uh, you know, you had like 16, 17, 18-year-olds who were making games that were selling millions of copies. And what, what kind of games were those? Which titles? Um, well, I mean, so Sensible S Software is a really good example. They were kind of like 16, 17 when they started coding, doing games like Whizball and Parallax. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are brothers, funnily enough. This kind of comes up. It's almost like a Malcolm Gladwell thing where it's just like, wow. you know, you had two people who were really like tight and close together and they were really young, so they didn't have to run a business. But if they could talk and kind of uh, have kind of an intuitive, creative relationship, then they rose to the top. So there were the Darling Brothers, who ran a company called Codemasters, which is still going today, like makes uh, dirt racing games, rally racing games. And they made a whole host of games. There was the Oliver Twins, who made, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, Dizzy Games, where you uh, you played an egg with shoes, uh, <laughs> wandering <laughs> the, the land. the kind of thing you forget, is it? No, exactly. <laughs> it's stuck into my mind, certainly. Well, it turns out you do, Will. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've played it. Codemasters, though, I remember. Codemasters. Like, logo within... Um, like, in the circle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and then their father was a contact lens manufacturer, entrepreneur, and he just kind of helped them shape it into a business. So we have all these kind of like one, two-man teams making games at this time. And then there were, you know, the suits and people in W.H. Smith's, the high street store, coming in and going, 
we need to put this thing into the high street. And then this is where it tipped. This is where you started to see these young teams converting arcade games from, you know, like Sega and uh, Atari and places like that onto home computers, and then suddenly it proliferated. With someone like Sensible Software, were the games they put out that absolutely died on their ass? Or, or, or were they hit after hit? Oh, yeah. I mean, you probably don't remember International 3D Tennis, Oh, I do. Why do you think international 3D tennis? <laughs> we were just talking about that. I heard that. take off to the same degree <laughs> as a sensible soccer. Well, I mean, so okay, so that's a good, a very particular particular uh, conversation about that game where they they made a 3D tennis game for a Commodore 64, but it was like incredibly slow. It was like a graphics demo, and it was very, it was just really weird. But I think it what it exemplified with sensible is they were always trying to do something new, and they were not particularly interested in repeating themselves for money at that point. They were always trying to do something new. So inevitably some things would fall over, like, you know, kind of any great kind of experimental artist. You know, you get pressure put on big games companies to kind of make a a first-person shooter, a football game, or, you know, an open-world game. You know, like, things get put into pigeonholes really easily. Like, people were just making whatever. I mean, mean, it was a joke, but I remember on the Your Sinclair, I think it was, they gave away Advanced Lawnmower Simulator. Uh, And that's one for you, Will. Yeah. <laughs> completed. Only game I've ever completed. <laughs> Actual Amazing. lawn overgrown. So get all your kicks on the Sinclair. So how did it change from then on in when it got to like PlayStations and Sega Saturns and things like that? How did the industry move? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, we've done, we've done four books so far, which all kind of concentrate on the 80s and 90s. And all of our books pretty much have an unhappy ending because the kind of like 94, 93, we started to see 3D come in, the, the Sony PlayStation. I don't know if you call it like an island nation thing, but when it happened, it it just kind of upset everything. Team sizes suddenly had to, you know, kind of blow up. They couldn't manage it. You know, they'd become bands and suddenly they were conducting orchestras. It wasn't it wasn't a thing that they could adapt easily to. So some people, some people did succeed and managed to make the translation to uh, PlayStation, but there was there were Americans and Japanese teams were stealing a march because they were already preparing for this and they were kind of being more business minded and can could adapt. So it obviously feels like VR is the next step in the gaming evolution. Yeah. Do you think those studios are now better prepared or do you think there's a good chance that we'll see exactly the same play out that st- some studios will just be left behind yeah. through not adapting to the technology? I think the the curious thing about VR is that we still don't quite know what we're doing with it, but now it seems to be an open conversation. I remember, it's really worth looking at this, that in the early 90s, there was a VR explosion in the early 90s as well. There were virtual reality cabinets in arcades. They were huge and they were really ugly. They were really expensive. And when you got in it, you felt sick and you didn't know what you were doing. And Sega even uh, spent a lot of money on VR in the 90s. They had so much money from the Mega Drive's uh, success. And I think now the barrier to entry is lower. I think the open discussion about VR is is what is it? But you know, you know, it, let's experiment with it. Is it is it ever going to work if I have to wear those clunky old 
goggles all the time. Yeah, my friend was saying that she didn't realise that some people came in her house when she was playing it the other day. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, there's something about it that just seems <laughs> I, so I mean, they were our friends, by the way, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different way of making money, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Here, wear this. <laughs> no, take it off. Where's your furniture? <laughs> Me and Will earlier were chatting about um, the most successful games, the ones that have grossed the most money. So something like GTA is obviously in the top 20 a few times with different versions. Why is something like that so successful? I mean, move away from simplicity. Tetris, Pong, Sensible Soccer... Right, they're simple and that's why that's worked. Why does GTA work? I think GTA works because, well, I say this, and also Minecraft is another one where I think if you watch anyone play it for the first time and kind of you're sat there with them, there's this moment of, I can do anything. Within the within the realms that you're set within, within the, the kind of architecture that the game builds up, as soon as you kind of like learn the shorthand for how you navigate the world, what's possible, I think there's this moment where you suddenly want to cancel everything in your diary and you kind of, you become empowered by the game. And it's really hard. You see open world games really fall flat. It offers you the illusion of, you know, ultimate power, of ultimate freedom, of ultimate possibility. And so I think when games do that, that is, that is something particularly magic. What are your hopes for video games in the future, Darren? It gets assumed that I play games a lot, but because I make books all the time, I don't have any time to actually play the games. And like it, an undertaking now to play a, like a, a Metal Gear Solid or something like that is just too much. I can't fit it in my life. Like I can't fit in 40 hours playtime in my life. So I, I'm really attracted to any games where somebody says it's brilliant and you can play it in the same time as a feature film. So things like Portal or Journey, those are games that have taken like maybe two or three hours to play and like I've engaged with them and loved them and then put them down and known that I've finished it and completed it. When I tell people about this who don't play games, it, like I feel like they light up, like, oh, it feels accessible suddenly. Because I do feel like there's a lot of assumption that either you play FIFA every night to the point where you can't speak properly or you're just kind of locked in a room and you've got, not got enough vitamin D because you're just like, you're, you're playing a game. Like I think all of these really unhealthy uh, assumptions about video games still exist so anything that can kind of like fight against that i think is really healthy perfect darren thank you so much for coming Thanks in for really appreciate it thank you first game i think i played was tekken i think that fighting game or mortal Kombat, something like that in my teenage years it was sort of all about um playing together with your friends and stuff but then that sort of died out when we discovered girls. And after that, like after losing like, the communal thing, then there was really much like, fun in anyway. I thought it was interesting what Darren was saying about how when the United States and Japan went for it, that's when it became an industry. And actually they're the two biggest games markets in the world. So the United States, the market for games is $13.6 billion. And in Japan, it's $7 billion. She's got $20 billion there of buying power. So as soon as you get America and Japan on board, bosh, new That's industry. What we need to drop everything, get on the games. Have you got a game in you? I don't know. I'm not very good at coming up with new stuff. I can look at something and go, oh, I think it could be better if you did this to it. But actually having that brilliant creative spark at the beginning, I've always left to you, mate. I think similar similar to your Trafalgar Square Pigeon as your public art idea. Well, that was good. Previous episode. Right. It's, I would be surprised. I think games are quite difficult now in terms of their originality. I think it's quite tough. I'm sure most games that we would come up with in an afternoon, you'd probably kind of work your way through them and go, yeah, been done. You'd hope so in an afternoon. <laughs> Maybe if we put our mind to it, we could come up with some other stuff. But I don't know. I feel like Darren could come up with an amazing game because there's a bit more understanding and context. But if we were to come up with an amazing game, Will, 
it would be complete luck. It wouldn't be down well, to... Well, unlike, unlike those other things that we've done. <laughs> Here's one for you, Will. So I know you're not a big games player now, but in the future you might be a big VR player, right? You might love a bit of VR. Do you know how much a VR console will set you back? Um, like Oculus Rift, that kind of one. Something like that. I would guess at about 200 quid. It's about six hundred dollars to ice price, but then you got PC. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? It's a lot. It is a lot of money, but but all these things start as a lot, don't they? Like flat screen TV years ago is loads of money, and now you can pick them up for a couple hundred quid. Yeah, true. I mean, I think. Do you think VR is going to take off? I think it will. The amount that you've started to hear about it, the big businesses that are putting all this money into it, I would be very surprised if it flopped. I'm fascinated to chat to Russ about the first time VR was introduced and what maybe held it up. But yeah, I think the amount of hype that's starting to gather around it, yes, VR this time around will work. Played um, loads of games as a kid, but now I only play Call of Duty. Strictly just Call of Duty. I think it's just the multiplayer and like, you know, having conversations with random people around the world and getting super aggressive and then, you know, teaming up with random people and blowing stuff up. When my boys play Call of Duty, we used to cut each other all the time. So like, there'll always be just that one guy and it'll be over nothing as well. Like you have like a weird like display name or whatever, and then that's your in, and then you just get at him for the entirety of the game. Until he either leaves the group or, you know what I mean? There's nothing you can do. See if you can get one in that old barn there. You wanna try cooking one off? I've just watched Will have a go on a VR game made by our next guest, Russ Earwaker, a games designer from Climax Studios. Russ, welcome. Hello. Tell us what Will was playing. Right, it's um, a mobile phone, virtual reality game. You stick the phone in the front of the headset and you've got a little guy in front of you. You're controlling him with a normal control pad and you can move him around left and right, you can shoot enemies, but you're in virtual reality, so you can look around and see the whole of the level potentially just by looking down to your left and right. So, yeah, it's kind of a side-on shooter platform game but with the VR twist in a way that it just couldn't be done on an Xbox. Got it. And I'm I'd... sold. I'm totally sold. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, you like it? Yeah. That. I think it's brilliant. You're a game designer at Climate Studio. Tell us what you do. It's, it's a bit of a, a strange and uh, kind of broad job title. I come up with the ideas for games and then also I kind of the guy who guides it to make it fun as well along the way and try and fill in the gaps between the artists and the coders to make sure that, you know, we're all on board and we're all working together and we're all kind of getting into... And, you know, having, having fun making a game, because that's the point, really. And how have you got to where you are? Where did kind of gaming start for you? I apparently played my first game on the ZX Spectrum uh, when I was about two, three years old. It was Manic Miner, um, Rubber Keyed Spectrum, absolutely loved it. Um, I started making levels for uh, the old game Doom when I was 14. So, Russ, if I say to you, yeah. IDKFA, <laughs> do you know what that means? I have a T-shirt that says that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remembered it right. I was I was impressing Will that yeah. I remembered the cheat from Doom, but yeah, it's I, obviously not that impressive in the gaming world. No, no, that's good. That's good. that's good. That's good. I wrote the, the cheat. <laughs> no, <from> the <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no I, I made some levels for Doom, and I loved it. I made loads of them, um, and 
I made some levels for another game called Half-Life and some Quake levels and all that kind of stuff. And that built up into about seven years' worth of just uh, building and dedicated time to get into the industry. Wow. So how much of Climax Studios' time currently is devoted to VR games? Well, we've had eight projects out in the last year, and I'm working on uh, another one called Balloon Chair Deathmatch at the moment. That's quite a good fun thing. So VR, I totally get the immersive thing of your head and where you're looking. Mm. There's still a disconnect between actually moving within a space. That is a tricky one. Do you think that's the kind of thing that in time we'll work out ways to overcome that? Or do you think that is just part of the same thing of when you sit in front of your PlayStation at the moment and play a non-virtual reality game that you're just going to fill in the gaps? It's a, a tricky topic because when you're, you're in the ear and your eyes have an argument we're built as animals to go, oh, I must have been poisoned. And that makes you want to, you know, feel a little bit sick. And that's what uh, virtual reality motion sickness is about. But we've already figured out so much stuff about how to avoid that. Like um, the way that you can move your character. Like in, in Balloon Chair, we found that we did loads of ex- experiments. If you move backwards, because of the joystick, um, you move backwards holding the joystick and spin it to the right and then looked around like a crazy person all over the place, that would make people feel sick really quickly. So we just did things like we stopped you spinning around when you're going backwards as much. And there's other stuff like, again, to the psychology of it, we're built as animals, as hunters. So our peripheral vision is very sensitive for movement. So in case, uh, you know, you, you see you're being hunted or some prey's coming, if you cover that up a little bit, some people feel much better because it's so sensitive that it just discounts and your brain stops being overloaded by stuff. So we make sure that you kind of, you move in specific ways, not too fast, not too jerkily, and having things around you in virtual reality while you're moving as like anchor points for you to understand, for your brain to hook onto. It's like looking at the horizon when you're on a boat and you're feeling seasick. It makes you feel a little bit better. So it's a challenge, but we are getting better at it. Uh, we're not completely solved it yet (laughs) i wanted to ask about the studios obviously kind of betting big on vr and it being the next best thing but but we've had vr prior right what are the big differences between the first kind of iteration of vr that that was kind of pushed and where we are today um well there's two things really the uh, processing power as in your computer couldn't run anything you know, back in the previous uh, VR thing, you know, it wasn't, wasn't anywhere near as powerful as that phone. So we've got that, and we can come up with more realistic graphics in the games in general. But also the, the technology for detecting where your head is and where your hands are on, like, the Vive and the Rift, they're really incredibly precise to the point where, you know, you, you'll end up holding your hand up just to see where, you know, and you'll notice it's exactly where your hand is, the controller in the, in the world and in the real world, you know, in the game world and the real world. So that kind of stuff, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of why at the moment. Um, we've been talking about a few games we, that have obviously been super successful, your Tetrises, your Pongs along the way today. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you keep that quality of idea and simplicity in VR where there are so many possibilities? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because we are actually come, we're at a, a new kind of game here. You know, it's a new kind of headset it's not a TV. Um, you, there's things you can do in TV, on TV and things you can't. You know, the, the controllers are totally different as well. They're motion detecting things. So that leads to, you know, things that feel natural in real life, kind of, they're natural in VR as well. There's a, an amazing thing called a tilt brush where you can draw in the air and it's just such a natural feeling to do it. You know, if you want to open a door in VR, you go up to it, you grab it, 
and you turn your hand, you know, like you would uh, with a door handle. That's that, that natural stuff feels great and instantly understandable. But if, if thinking for the future, I'm quite excited about um, augmented reality or mixed reality, which I think is going to be the next thing of bringing everything together. You know, the connect for the Xbox, virtual reality, augmented reality, all coming together to make something new. That's going to be exciting. Tell our listeners what the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality is if they haven't heard of that. Right. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah. an easy one. Yep. It just defines something. Yeah. Aug- augmented reality um, is basically when you have a set of glasses. And you can see the real world um, through those glasses, but the computer is actually generated 3D objects around you and putting them on the real world. Like Pokemon Go? Yeah, a bit, but more detailed. So it would actually look like you've got a little Pokemon on your desk. It's in the right position, maybe even casting a shadow on the desk. It might be able to lean up against a glass. You know, that's, that's a long way in the future. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. That kind of stuff is exciting. And that's kind of when we get to do some crazy things. <laughs> All those things you, you describe about what the future might look like, I still come back to this idea of, yeah, but it's got to be a good game, right? Oh, yeah, you don't want that Pokemon just hanging around on your glass, like... <laughs> chilling out not doing anything i want it you know there's got to be a point to that right yeah yeah well if it's a game there's got to be a point to it if it's not a game then there's no reason why you can't have a little pokemon constantly on your desk having a bit of a dance you know just cheer you up yeah i'm I'm into that (laughs) i've got an idea for my vr game great football manager in vr would be ace you stand on the touchline watch the players shout some instructions i like that a lot yeah Yeah. can you imagine it you know you've got your little your football pitch in front of you you want to tell someone off you pick them up you literally just yell at them while they're in your hand, put them back on the pitch. Right, let's talk right, after this. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's get that one done. Yeah. Collaboration. So, now the excitement of Alex is going to get hooked up to the VR and have a go, and we're going to listen to him playing. Okay, <coughs> Thank so you very much. That on your head. Is it comfortable? It's very comfortable. So, no. so tell us what you can see, Al. Oh, I'm in this world. It doesn't look much like the studio. It's absolutely insane, isn't it? Like, I don't want to fall down there. Like, it's... um. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what to say about it. I'm I'm this little dude shooting loads of stuff and I can jump around. I can't move. Uh your I'm... move is on the sticks. Right, I can move. Oh hello. Now we're talking, right, I'm moving now, I'm moving through the world. I got this little guy. Battle begins. Let's go, Mars. Let's go. So essentially I'm running through this world, I'm jumping up. Do I l- <laughs> it's kinda of, it's it's a bit unnerving. I feel a little bit travel sick. But it turns out I'm pretty good at it. Don't worry about it. I've just walked you just into, got hit though, mate. I've just walked into the microphone. It's 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 weirdly natural, isn't it? Is it what you thought it would be? I think it is. It feels like a platform game, but what is so weird is is I feel like I should be falling off a cliff here. And actually I'm not. It's just like it's the carpet. That's the really freaky bit is over there. Like, oh shit. Like, imagine that. I can see why people get completely freaked out by this. Because if I take one step that way, I'm going to fall to my death. I've, I've, di- I've died. I've died, but in another way. Thank you so much for your time, Russ. It's been a pleasure. Being in the game was kind of nuts. I liked it. I, you can really see where it's going. What I think was most amazing about it was forgetting about your other surroundings really quickly. Your brain just completely switches off for us being in the studio. You're instantly somewhere else. And then when you come out of it, you're like, oh, well, actually, I'm still here. That complete escapism, I think, is the real power of it. Not even necessarily the gameplay or the, you know, what you're doing in there. I really liked what he was talking about when he said you've got to take care of your users. 
So he was talking specifically about not making them feel sick. But even in what Darren was saying and what we heard from Pong, it's like making sure someone can use it and understanding who your audience is before coming up with that idea. It's also, I mean, it's a design problem really, isn't it? It feels like a very natural creative process to make something like that. I think it's super exciting place to be working at the moment. I think there's loads going on. I think there's that kind of endless possibilities. I, I think if it, if it takes off, and I think it will, I think the type of games that we're going to be playing in five years are so advanced, are so amazing. But I think it, it's funny that one of the things that seems to have come up a few times is this idea of simplicity. And actually, when you talk about the, the technology is anything but simple, but actually it seems like those the simple things will be the things that take off. Like you say, just the intuitive nature of how you play, how you move, how you shoot, how you do all of that stuff. You don't want big arrows directing you um, through, through levels. Also, I think the success comes in the fun element. I haven't really thought about that. Russ touched on that a lot. The idea of a successful game is you can use it simply. It's fun. And I like this idea around, and I think I like it in normal design as well, the idea of designing around limitations feels like a very, very smart thing to be able to do, especially with something with VR where the possibilities are kind of endless. You, you need to almost put your own parameters on those possibilities, I think. Totally agree. What's quite interesting is in last pod, when we spoke about public art, you know, the success there is about instant gratification, about simplicity, about people understanding it. I don't think there's anything that different really to a brilliant video game to a brilliant piece of public art. This idea of what makes creative things successful is an ability to understand them and digest them. It feels like a completely universal thing, right? I think, I think we're done then. I think this will be the last pod. We've answered that creativity in a nutshell. See you later. <laughs>